Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. We are in week four, uh, or, or it might be week five, but it's uh, resolution four in our series on resolutions. I've got five core values, five core disciplines that we as followers of Jesus should put in into our lives in 2024 so as to thrive in uh, good seasons and in bad. And so we've talked about uh, living a life of worship and living life in loving community and uh, reaching out to invite people in love, which is the great commandment and the great commission. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and go into all the world and make disciples. And so those have been the first three core values uh, that we as Christians practice so as to be like trees planted by streams of water that have green leaves in the desert. Uh, and we're in this series because it's the beginning of the year, and I think 2024 may be a challenging year, uh, which feels like a desert to a lot of people. And we want to be able to thrive in 2024. So we're going to get into our fourth uh, great core discipline today and a, a good resolution to put in place in our lives this year. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for 2024. Thank you that this year is in your hands, that everything coming for us is already planned by you, that none of it is out of your control. Help us to rest in your sovereignty, in your strength, and in your grace. Thank you that uh, whatever comes our way, uh, you turn to the good for our sakes. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, uh, a story of Jesus, a teaching from Jesus uh, about, um, about uh, uh, Christian life and what, what we do when we follow him. Uh, John, John, chapter 13, at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. So they remember this is their Independence Day. Just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He's foreseen his own a death, his own crucifixion. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Uh, now, if you know the story of Jesus, then you know that at the end of his life, his disciple Judas turns on him and with a kiss, hands him over to the Roman guards who arrest him and take him to be crucified. And there's been a lot of speculation about why would Judas do that? Judas has traveled with him for three years. He's witnessed miracles. He's seen Jesus raise the dead. What would possess Judas to hand Jesus over for crucifixion? And obviously John says that Satan entered uh, Judas and that's what possessed him. But there's a, there's a theory that uh, Judas actually had a plan that, that would have made sense in some way. Uh, he's called Judas Iscariot. And there's a theory that Iscariot is not a last name, but refers to him being a part of a faction known as the Sicarii, which translated means dagger men. And the Sicarii were a group of uh, rabble-rousers who wanted to bring about a revolution against Rome. And part of the way they did that was through assassinations with a knife. And that's why they were called daggermen or, or Sicarii. And there's one theory 
that perhaps Judas thought if he handed Jesus over on Independence Day weekend in Jerusalem, the Jewish people who were so discontent with Rome would rise up and throw out Herod and maybe rescue Jesus. So maybe there's, there's an even possibility that Judas didn't mean for Jesus to be killed, but rather thought he would uh, ignite a rebellion uh, and, uh, and bring about the revolution that they wanted. Who knows? What we do know is that Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This was the common practice of a servant in first century Judea. You would walk around on dirt roads in your Birkenstocks. Your feet would get all dirty. You didn't want to get, get dirt on the linoleum when you came into the house. And so commonly a servant would work at the door and would fill a basin with water and wash people's feet. It was a menial task meant uh, for the, the lowest of servants. Uh, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Now, this is a strange conversation, and if you've never read this before, the first time you read it, you think, huh, why is Peter making a big to-do about this? I mean, I understand maybe Peter is reacting to Jesus, whom he reveres, taking on the role of a servant, but what's the deal with wash my hands and my hair, too? I mean, what's, why, why, are, you, uh, why are you going to, to this length? And, and Peter's always kind of a goof who has a flair for dr uh, dramatic overstatements, so this is not an unusual outburst from Peter. But, but I think what Peter might have in mind here is baptism, because he's watched the ritual of washing, which is baptism. They saw John the Baptist doing it with his disciples, and then Jesus' disciples began baptizing people as well. And baptism was this symbol that they practiced where they went out into a river and submersed and rose again. And John the Baptist used this as a prophetic symbol to say that you need to be washed and start a new life. You need to wash away your, your sinful life and the mess that you've made and start a new life. And in Jesus and in the Christian tradition, we celebrate baptism as a sign that we have washed off our old self and started a new life in Jesus. Uh, just as, as Jesus died and rose from the dead, so we immerse beneath the water and rise again, symbolizing that we have died to our old selves, ourselves without Jesus, and arisen to a new self, life with Jesus. And so perhaps Peter has uh, baptism uh, in mind because he's they've been baptizing people and that's the symbol of ritual washing that he maybe thinks Jesus is doing here. But Jesus isn't talking about washing away sin. Jesus is setting an example of service. He, he's going to set a role model. He's going to explain here what he's doing. He's, he's going to set a role model of being humble and serving other people instead of glorifying oneself. And Peter just seems to misunderstand it. Every time 
Peter goes to correct Jesus. We get something that sounds a little bit like the old who's on first routine that the comedians in black and white used to do. Jesus goes on, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Uh, and this is important, that Jesus knows what Judas is going to do, and Jesus doesn't seek to stop him or to take power over him or to get revenge on him. Jesus recognizes that he is going to be betrayed, and at no point does he fight back. Uh, at one point, he will even say, I could call down a legion of angels to protect me, but everything is in God's hands, uh, and he doesn't have to do that. That's a good Good word for us in 2024, as we enter a, an election season, when a lot of people are going to be vying for power. And we have to realize that when we follow after Jesus, our goal is not to claim earthly power for ourselves, but to live into God's kingdom and to serve one another in love. Remember that the scriptures say that when we are weak, God is strong. And Jesus models that here. When he had finished washing their feet, this is verse 12 now, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A uh, little word study here. Uh, Jesus says that he's a teacher, and the Greek word is didaskalos. And uh, didaskalos, a teacher, uh, is often translated master in the New Testament. And in the Greco-Roman world, a didaskalos was a someone who had ascended to the rank of teacher such that they were qualified to transfer from uh, school to school, to transfer from one place to another, and were recognized as a teacher in all places. It became the basis for the, the naming of the modern-day master's degree. You were a master of your subject, which meant you were qualified above all to teach the subject. Before there was a a PhD or a doctorate, a master's degree was the, the highest ranked teacher. So that's the Greek word that's used here. But remember, Jesus didn't speak Greek, he spoke Hebrew. And so he's using the, the Hebrew equivalent of a didaskalos, which was a rabbi. You call me rabbi, you call me teacher. And remember, rabbi is not a, a commonplace role. You have to translate this because in modern day America, there are teachers everywhere. Uh, we all know teachers, and there are teacher, you see your teacher at the grocery store, uh, and it's just a common experience. It's a, it's a job like uh, everywhere else. Um, and we all, education is, is wide and popular now. 90% of the American population has a high school degree, and I think a third of the American population has a four-year college degree. Education is very common now, but not so in the four, uh, first century Judean landscape. Uh, to, and education was a precious thing, and only the boys were educated, and only if you proved yourself could you advance to the next level of education. And rabbis were the highest pinnacle of teachers within Jewish culture. If you were a rabbi, you were a lawyer because you had studied God's law in depth. Uh, there was not a separation of church and state, so if you were versed in God's law, you were versed in civil law. 
and people could come to you for your legal counsel on all issues. You were like a, uh, a lawyer and you might even get to serve on the Sanhedrin, which was like the Supreme Court of, of their day. You were a, law, a lawyer and a judge and a professor and you were uh, by all means respected. Everybody admired you. And that's the person who got down and washed his disciples' feet. The one who was revered above all, put himself in the lowest of positions. And then he says, if you're my follower, you'll do what I do. A servant is not better than his master. And so if you call me master, if you call me didaskalos, rabbi, the disciple is not better than the rabbi. And so if the rabbi washes feet, the disciple washes feet. You as a disciple are not entitled to say, well, I don't do that. I'm too important for that. If the rabbi does it, the disciple does it. Um, it surprises me in modern day Christendom when we forget this. Uh, I remember when I was uh, a young pastor and I was interviewing at a, a church, one of the first times I interviewed at a church, they invited me to give a lecture to a, a class of adults so they could see me teach. This was back before you could make videos and send them all over the place. That's how old I am. And, uh, and they had me uh, fly in and teach a class so they could uh, witness me teaching and interact and ask questions. And after the class was over, uh, everybody began to fold up their metal folding chairs and put them against the wall. And so I did too. I picked up folding chairs and as I was talking with people, was putting chairs back against the wall along with uh, everyone else. Later on, uh, we were gathered in a living room to do some more uh, interviewing. And uh, uh, one of the people on the, the search committee said to me, we noticed that after the class, uh, you helped put chairs away with everyone else. We've never seen a pastor do that before. Like they, were, they were surprised at something as simple as that. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying it's surprising to me when Christians forget who we follow, particularly the clergy. I heard about a pastor, a current day pastor, who has a great big megachurch, and he requires his congregation to stand and applaud when he walks in to preach a sermon. He started it very early on and told them that's what he wanted and got them trained so they do that every time. Now, when he walks in to preach a sermon, he has them stand up and give him, give him a standing ovation for walking in the room when he shows up to preach because he needs it. And I'm astonished at those who follow the one who said, a servant is not greater than his master, and the master is the one who is the servant of all, the one who washes, washes everyone's feet. And yet, followers of Jesus forget that. Um, I, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm surprised uh, that, that a pastor would require people to applaud for him. I mean, unless, you know, unless you guys are in favor of it, in which case, who am I to argue? <laughs> so here, here's, here's what we're doing. We're looking at five core disciplines for the Christian life that we put in place so as to thrive in challenging seasons. We live lives of worship where we are fully attentive to God's presence. We set aside a Sabbath day to live lives of worship. And, and studies in happiness have shown that thankfulness is a key catalyst in happiness. It, you would think that if you're happy, then you'll be thankful, but it actually works the other way around. Studies have shown that those who are most thankful are most happy. So we live lives of worship in, in which we are constantly attentive to how thankful we are to our good God. Secondly, we live life in community. We live uh, to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
and we surround ourselves with uh, people who help us grow in community. And again, the, the studies in happiness, like the, the longevity study being done at Harvard, have shown that one of the key ingredients to happiness is loving relationships with other people. So we live lives of worship. We live lives in loving community. Uh, thirdly, we looked at the call to invite people into the family of God, to reach out in love to people who don't know Jesus. And one of the most satisfying experiences you can have in life is helping to point people towards Jesus. Uh, I had an experience just this week. Uh, I teach at a little Christian university, and many of the students are, are already Christians and are planning on going into ministry of some kind. But occasionally we get students there who are not Christians. And in my class this week, I was explaining the moral argument for the existence of God. Uh, the idea that if we have definitive moral claims, like the idea that torturing a child is always wrong, that there has to be a foundation for that. And the most logical foundation for objective moral values is the existence of God. Without God, it's hard to explain where objective morals might come from. And a, a young man came up to me after class, and he said, uh, can, I, can I ask you about that? And I said, sure. And he said, uh, he said I'm actually an atheist. Uh, and uh, uh, I had interacted with this student just in the previous class, because he had come up to me after the previous class and said, uh, hey, you need to know, I, I saw a couple of the students cheating on the quiz that you gave us. And I just wanted you to know that you got to be careful that there's students cheating on the quiz. So I had met him before. He came up uh, after this conversation about the moral argument for God. And he said, uh, he said, I'm an atheist. And, and I actually wrote a paper once against the moral argument because I actually don't believe that they're objective moral values. I don't believe that anything is ultimately morally right or wrong. And I said, now, hold on. You told me after the last class that I should know that a couple of students were cheating. And he said, yeah, so? And I said, that's a moral value. The, the belief that people shouldn't cheat is a moral value. You obviously do have moral values that you think are objective because you think they apply to people who are breaking them. And he said, uh, he said oh, you got me. And, and then he walked away. <laughs> so, but he, uh, he's, he's a very good-hearted young man. And I look forward to the conversations that I'm going to be able to have with him this quarter in class. Because one of the most important things we can do with our life is invite people lovingly into a relationship with Jesus. And it's not fierce debate with them. It's not, it's not in any way shaming or scolding them. It's having conversations about things that matter and explaining why Jesus means so much to us. And uh, if you've never done that before, stepping into the, the life of faith where you live to point people towards Jesus, there's nothing, there's nothing more satisfying than that. So that's the, the third core practice. The fourth one is this, what we see Jesus doing when he washes uh, his disciples' feet. We, we seek to find a place where we can serve people in love, especially people in need, especially the poor. Uh, we have a pantry here at the church where we feed uh, about 100 families uh, twice a month on the Saturdays that we host the pantry. And we uh, advanced our pantry to serving hot coffee as well as giving out groceries. And this coming Saturday, we're going to start serving a hot breakfast at our pantry as well. Our, our pantry is growing and we want to love people well. And, and finding a place in which you can use your life to serve other people in love is just filled with meaning. That when you do that, you will thrive in difficult seasons. People will look at you and say, why is that person so happy? And you could say, well, I live a life of worship. I live in loving community. 
I live to impact other people for the kingdom and invite them into God's family. And I live to serve people in need uh, the way Jesus served others. We're going down to Mexico next month to build a house for a pastor. We're in this uh, church planting network down there that builds a church and then a house for the pastor and often a little schoolhouse for the kids. Last year, we built a little school next to a church. This year, we're going to build a house for a pastor next to a church. And if you've uh, never been on one of those, you're welcome to uh, apply to that and go with us. Or I know a lot of people can't go, but they want to they wanna be a part of that process. This year, if uh, we've calculated out, if every giving unit in the church, that means individual or family that gives to the church, uh, gives an extra $24, $24 in 2024, that will cover the $7,000 it takes to build the house. That's exactly how much we give to that church planting network down in Mexico, $7,000 to build the house. And so if every giving unit in the church gives $24 extra in 2024, that will pay for the house in Mexico. And so uh, so pray about that. If you've got $24 and you want to you know, skip going out to eat once, and you know, this, this year you can skip going out to McDonald's once and save $24. Um, but, uh, but pray about that because that's a good way to serve uh, people that you may never meet uh, but people who are in desperate need on the other side of the border. And uh, we seek to, to love as Jesus loved. One day, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, get in a fight over who's most important. And Jesus called them together. This is in Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles, which non-Jewish people, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus' term for himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Jesus teaches this as a duty to stop an argument. Right? They're arguing about who's most important. And he says, it's actually your job to serve, not to be served. But, but contained in this call to serve is a beautiful promise. When we seek to live lives of service, we benefit in, in three important ways. One, God blesses us because we are on the supply chain of caring for others. Remember, it's like being a, a soldier in the battle who can call back to headquarters and say, I need more supplies, and uh, headquarters will send supplies to the soldier because they're in the heart of battle. And when you and I are involved in ministry and loving other people in Jesus' name, we can pray that God would supply our needs to provide for others, and we get to be part of the supply line and see our needs taken care of. Secondly, when we serve, we receive life and life to the full. Uh, and when, when Jesus first said this, I thought he was just being spiritual. But in fact, what he was saying is now, is now science. When, when we seek to, to serve uh, in love, uh, we actually receive life in tangible ways. Uh, a study done in uh, 1999 actually showed that there is a direct correlation between volunteer service and longevity. People who are regularly involved in volunteering as a charity live longer than people who don't, uh, significantly longer. It was 63% uh, of the people, um, uh, the people were 63% less likely to die if they were regularly involved in volunteer service. 
And I could not believe I had not uh, heard this fact before because you would think pastors would be all over this. Uh, we need a third grade Sunday school teacher uh, and your other choice is you're going to die, <laughs> right? You'd never have to beg anybody to serve at your pantry. You could just tell them you can either serve at the pantry or we can plan your funeral. Which would you like to do? <clears throat> Sorry, I had more jokes, but they got a little bit dark. So we'll, we'll stop that. But, but to be serious though, it only makes sense that when we serve, our lives would be more uh, healthy. Doesn't the, the baker know that yeast will make the dough rise? Doesn't the butcher know that salt will preserve the meat? And, and doesn't the composer of our souls know what songs will make them dance? God designed us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what we're made for. And so when he tells us, wash one another's feet, don't seek to be greater, seek to serve. And when you do, you'll receive life the way it's supposed to be. God knows tangibly how we're made and what we're made for. And thirdly, when we serve, it, it opens up the doorway between earth and heaven. If you really want to discover intimacy with Jesus, then serve people in need. If you really want to hear Jesus' voice, then put, your, put yourself in places where you are serving people in need. The first time I think I, I heard really clearly God speak to me was when I was on a mission trip in Mexico, like the one we're taking next month. And I had taken a group of students down there to, to work at building houses, and we were sleeping at an orphanage on a cold stone floor of an orphanage. And I remember one night I was uh, going to bed there uh, in my sleeping bag on that, that floor of that orphanage, and there were students from the youth group scattered all over the place. And I remember praying, God, how do you want me to serve these people? And I was looking for a checklist of things that I could do so I could feel good about myself. But I prayed, how should I serve these people? And I heard within me, it, it wasn't quite an audible voice, but almost. And the answer came back, just be overwhelmed by me. Uh, and I had the feeling that wasn't my imagination because it wasn't something I would have thought of and it wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for a checklist of things I could do to feel like I was accomplishing things. And I feel like in that moment, God said to me, just be overwhelmed by me. If you want to hear from Jesus, go where Jesus is likely to go and do what Jesus is likely to do. And he told us himself what that is. Those who would be the greatest will be the servant of all. A servant is not better than his master. And so if the master washes other people's feet, so should we. Such is the fourth core discipline of a Christian life and a life lived well. Let's go practice that. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.